Today on the Matt Wall Show, the U.S. birth rate is collapsing. Our civilization is going extinct. Some may consider that a minor problem. Others say it's actually a good thing. We'll discuss. Also, Joe Biden finally answers some questions about his Afghanistan evacuation plan, and his answers were more unintelligible than usual. He is falling apart before our eyes as the world also falls apart. Great stuff. Meanwhile, the left continues to argue that the Taliban in Afghanistan really aren't any worse than conservatives here in America. And this line of argument raises a few questions, which I will ask today. And a doctor in Alabama announces that he will not see any patients who haven't been vaccinated, while another doctor elsewhere in the country takes a picture of himself crying on the job and posts it to Twitter to raise awareness about the fact that he's an attention-starved drama queen. We'll talk about all of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. And now we will check in with our good friends over at Moink. We, uh, at my house, we recently got our latest Moink shipment. And um, we've, uh, I, I would like to say that we, you know, were able to space it out and everything. But we really, we tear through that thing pretty quickly. And so we've already finished it off. Uh, Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon directly to your door. They also got bacon, uh, I should mention. Very, very, very good bacon. All of their stuff is, is great. And uh, not only are they sending you great food, but they're helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, none of that junk you're getting with the prepackaged stuff. Uh, so it's delicious, it's healthy for you. And you can sign up at moinkbox.com Walsh right now to get, speaking of their bacon, a year of bacon for free, and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Cannot recommend this enough. So join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash Walsh right now. And listeners to the show get free bacon for a year. Again, that is free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. So you want to go to moinkbox.com slash Walsh, spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash Walsh. So this uh, may or may not seem like a big deal to you, but it's probably at least worth mentioning that we are going extinct as a civilization. It is, you might say, a minor problem. U.S. birth rates are dropping like a rock and have been for some time. A report a few months ago found that the birth rate in the United States fell again in 2020, a 4% decline from 2019. And 2019 had been a decline from the year before that and so on. As it stands right now, the fertility rate is 56 births per 1,000 women. That's the general fertility rate, which is the lowest we've ever seen in a given year. The completed fertility rate, or total fertility rate, which tells us how many children a woman will have in her lifetime, is now at 1.6, also the lowest ever, and well below replacement level. In fact, we haven't had a fertility rate above replacement level since the early 70s, at least. After years of hysteria over the mythological beast known as overpopulation, we're now being told that our problem is exactly the opposite. A headline on CNBC says that researchers are now warning of underpopulation. Instead of, instead of having so many people packed onto the earth that islands are capsizing on themselves, as a Democrat congressman once famously worried about out loud, uh, now instead we face the much more real problems of living in a society where families aren't producing enough children to replace themselves. The average number of children per family is now under two. People still talk about it like it's, oh, you know, the standard 2.5 kids per family. It's actually like 1.7 now, and uh, it's been under two for a long time. Much is being written um, about why this is happening, but, but the reasons, reasons should be clear enough. Yes, we are experiencing record levels of infertility. That's, that's 
one reason, a great boon for the IVF industry, but not so great in any other sense. Why all of the infertility? Well, it could have something to do with the chemicals we're consuming. Uh, there could be plenty of diet and environmental factors. I'm sure that, 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 that weighs in here. That's part of the problem. And it's also a fact that women are choosing to wait until they are past their peak fertility years to start having kids. The average age for having a first child and, and only child much of the time is now 26 or 27 for women and around 30 for men or older. 26 is still within peak fertility range, but to get to that average, you know, not too long ago, it was like 20 or 21, a few decades ago. So to get to the 26 average, there have to be, of course, millions of women waiting until they're well into their 30s to even start. In fact, in many other countries across the West, in Europe, the average age, the average age for women to start families is 30, meaning that women are on average waiting until their fertility starts to wane to even start a family or try. Now, this, again, is great news for IVF clinics, bad news for everybody else. Or is it bad news? If you listen to the media, well, you're not going to hear a whole lot about this issue at all. But when you do hear about it, very often you'll be told that the collapse of the American birth rate and our plummeting fertility levels are not a big deal at all. An article this past weekend in The Atlantic written by Elizabeth Brunig says that the population decline narrative is nothing but a right-wing trope. You know, it's just something that right-wingers talk about. She says that uh, most women do end up having kids eventually, so uh, why does it matter? A piece recently published in Popular Science goes a step further, explaining that our march towards extinction is good, actually. The writer argues that this is all a reflection of shifting gender roles and the fact that more women are working, and so uh, it's something to celebrate. Besides, kids are expensive. And also, the article says, we could just bring immigrants in to replace us and pick up the slack. Only don't call it replacement because, as we've seen, that makes you a white supremacist. Unless you're writing for popular science, in which case, you know, you can you, you can acknowledge the replacement as long as you think it's good. That's the rule. Somehow, though, even after reflecting on these compelling arguments, I still can't see our population decline as anything but bad news. I mean, very, very bad news. Crisis-level bad news. And two reasons are worth considering here. The first is the rather obvious but crucial point that the human race requires humans in order to exist. And I, for one, consider existence to be a superior state to non-existence. I prefer existence. I don't know about you. I prefer a future over no future. These are just my own preferences, admittedly, but even so, I mean, we, we can look uh, historically and see that a rapid decline in birth rates has never been a good sign for any civilization. This is always something that precedes collapse. No civilization has given up on future generations and seen the birth rate plummet and then went on to flourish because of it. That's never happened, and we're not going to be the exception. But, you know, there's something else, too. It's a, a different problem, but related. The other issue with our birth rate decline is that it reveals a dramatic and ultimately cataclysmic shift in our priorities as a people. As much as we may want to blame external factors, we can't afford kids, they're expensive, it's not feasible, whatever. The fact is that we are having fewer kids or no kids because we have prioritized our time and money in other ways. It should already be obvious that the money excuse is pretty lame, considering the fact that the average American family 200 years ago was exponentially larger than ours and exponentially poorer. No, it can't be a lack of money or resources, but rather 
how we choose to expend them. In fact, it's hard to say that our choice to forgo parenthood is a matter of prudent financial planning when we're spending almost $100 billion a year on our pets. That's billion with a B. Go look it up. Over the course of this decade, if the rates stay the same and don't increase, which they will, but pretending they don't, we will have spent a trillion dollars taking care of our favorite four-legged creatures. A trillion. While complaining that we just don't, we don't have the money for kids right now. And that's to say nothing of all the money we spend on consumer electronics and other luxuries. We have the funds to start families. We just don't have the priorities. A a civilization that uh, gives up on the future is an inherently self-centered and shallow civilization. And that's maybe the worst consequence of our declining birth rates. Though you might say that it's both the cause and the consequences, both the chicken and the egg. As we forfeit family life, we begin to live lives that are increasingly focused only on the here and now and only on finding personal comfort and enjoyment in the here and now. A civilization that produces lots of children and large families also produces better people, less selfish people, people who who feel called to dedicate themselves to a cause bigger than their own entertainment. They care more about their country, more about the civilization they are a part of. This is also part of the story when we see the decline in patriotism. Why are people less patriotic now? Well, because they're less invested in their country. They care less about it. They're less connected to it. When you have a family, it's a different story. Also, when you're having kids and you have a family, you're, you're happier and more joyful. I mean, ultimately, living in a country which has chosen population decline, embraced it as a lifestyle choice, chosen it, the worst thing about it is the despair. Now, people may be entertained, they may be satiated, they may be comfortable, they may be well-fed and fat, and we are certainly all of those things. And we, ha- we may have more funds available for vacations and to buy the newest iPhone when it releases, but we're also going to be in despair because we see no deeper purpose in life and we're not concerned about the future. A declining civilization is a despairing civilization. You wonder why everybody's depressed and anxious and they're going to their therapists and psych- psychiatrists asking for pills to solve the problem. And yet they find more often than not that the pill doesn't solve the problem. To give up on having babies is to give up on having hope. It's to give up on purpose. And, you know, there are some people, a small minority, who have embraced this truth. They call themselves antinatalists, and they will openly profess that the human race has a net negative value that life itself is meaningless and without purpose, and our ultimate hope and destiny is in our own collective oblivion. Most people who choose childish, childlessness and childishness uh, have not thought about it on a philosophical level like that, and so they, they don't really identify themselves with the antinatalist movement. But this is their view, whether they fully acknowledge it or not, or even whether they fully realize it or not. One of the early philosophers of the antinatalist movement was a guy named Peter Wessel Zapfa, who you've never heard of because almost nobody has heard of him, especially in America. He wrote an essay. I think he only only wrote one thing that was ever translated into English. And uh, it's an essay that was very influential in certain circles. It was called The Last Messiah. And in it, he unveils his vision of a society that finally chooses to embrace its own extinction. He believed that life is meaningless, that the future is meaningless. 
that the existence of human beings was nothing but a tragic accident, that it is morally wrong to have kids and to bring them into this, into this meaningless, purposeless uh, life. And at the end of this thoroughly depressing essay, which I did read, um, he imagines the last Messiah, the true Messiah, showing up to preach his saving gospel of extinction. Here's what he writes. He says, Then will appear the man who, as the first of all, has dared strip his soul naked and submit it alive to the outmost thought of the lineage, the very idea of doom. A man who has fathomed life in its cosmic ground and whose pain is the earth's collective pain. With what furious scream shall not mobs of all nations cry out for his thousandfold death, when like a cloth his voice encloses the globe, and the strange message has resounded for the first and last time. And he says, The life of the world is a roaring river, but earth's is a pond and a backwater. The sign of doom is written on your brows. How long will ye kick against the pinpricks? But there is one conquest and one crown, one redemption and one solution. Know yourselves. Be infertile and let the earth be silent after you. Now, this is, in fact, the conquest and crown that our civilization has chosen. chosen. Infertility. To let the earth be silent after us. If it sounds awful and depressing and appalling, well, then the good news is you're still sane. What should you do about it? Well, get married. Have babies. Pretty simple, really. Have lots of babies. Be fruitful and multiply. It's the very first command God gives us in Scripture. And there's a reason why it was first, as it turns out. Let's get now to our five headlines. We've talked about it a lot on this show. There are a lot of jobs available right now, uh, which should be good news for everybody. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of employers are, are having s- some serious trouble finding people, finding the right candidates for the job. But according to Forbes, gyms, nail salons, hotels, mom and pop stores, and more are set to go on an epic hiring spree in the coming months to meet the pent-up demand for all of these services. All these businesses reopening means that millions of jobs will need to be filled and do need to be filled right now. So where do these businesses turn to fill those roles? Well, they go to ZipRecruiter, or they should if they know it's good for them. Right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Walsh. When you post a job on ZipRecruiter, they send your job to over 100 top job sites, giving you access to their network of millions of job seekers. Uh, ZipRecruiter's matching technology scans resumes to find qualified candidates for your open roles and proactively presents them to you. So this is a proactive thing. It's not a passive thing where you're just putting it out there and waiting for the result. Uh, They're going to go and find you those candidates. ZipRecruiter's technology is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So right now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Walsh. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash W-A-L-S-H. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Walsh. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, Afghanistan. Let's talk about Afghanistan. I hope you'll forgive me for not beginning the show with Afghanistan. There are, there are other things in the world that are, that are happening that are important. Like, again, the extinction of our civilization. Kind of an important thing. Um, but Afghanistan is also happening. So we're going to go through some of this. This isn't even going to really be five headlines. This is just a, a jumble. This is a ball of headlines is what it's really going to be. So I have a bunch of things to cover here. We'll start, I guess, with uh, Joe Biden. You've probably seen some of these clips, but worth playing again. He was interviewed by uh, George uh, Snuffleupagus on ABC. And this is the first time that Joe Biden has taken any questions on Afghanistan. These are the only questions. He has not given a single press conference about it. Um, Or he's given things that look like press conferences, but then he shuffles away 
uh, before you know answering any questions about it. So he sits down here and he, he uh, to to allegedly answer some questions. But what he has to say is, we are used to hearing unintelligible things from this man. But this is far worse than you would even expect. Let's listen. When you look at what's happened over the last week, was it a failure of intelligence, planning, execution, or judgment? Look, I don't think it was a failure. Look, it was a simple choice, George. When the, when the Taliban, uh, let me back it, put it another way. When you had the government of Afghanistan, the leader of that government getting in a plane and taking off and going to another country, when you saw the significant collapse of the, of the uh, Afghan troops we had trained, up to 300,000 of them, just leaving their equipment and, and, and taking off. That was, you know, I'm not, this is, is that, that's what happened. That's simply what happened. But we've all seen the pictures. We've seen those hundreds of people packed into a C-17. We've seen Afghans falling. That was four days ago, five days ago. What did you think when you first saw those pictures? What I thought was we're, we have to gain control of this. We have to move this more quickly. We have to move in a way in which we can take control of that airport. And we did. So you don't think this could have been handled, this actually could have been handled better in any way? No mistakes? No, I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight and look, but the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that happened. So for you, that was always priced into the decision? Yes. The only thing that was honest and made sense of all those clips you just heard was where he said, I don't know how that happened. I believe him on that. He doesn't know how anything happened. The process by which he ended up sitting in that chair talking to the ABC reporter, he's not, he doesn't know how that happened either. It is not an exaggeration to say this man literally cannot complete a sentence. I mean, am I wrong? Was there one full sentence uttered? He, he starts to begin a sentence and then kind of trails off and cuts himself off and then goes off in another direction. Some of this is that he's scrambling to come up with excuses and he's panicking. Um, but then a lot of it is also that he's 78 years old and he has dementia. Turns out that having a dementia-addled Alzheimer's patient for a president is not a good idea. Who would have thought? Turns out it's not a good idea. Let's, can, can we agree to not ever do this again? The, the, the thing is, we can't agree. Even after this experience, we as a people are so collectively stupid that we can't even agree. Like, Can we agree that we're never going to have another 78-year-old president ever again? We're not going to try this experiment again? We can't. Um, he says, uh, he says it, it's hard to really analyze what he said because, again, there was almost nothing coherent there except when he, except when he confessed that he has no idea what's going on. Uh, the bit about how it was four or five days ago when people were falling off of airplanes, I, I, I'm not sure what he was actually going for there. What, what point was he trying to make? And of course, he's got his friend interviewing him, and he's so he's not going to follow up. He's not, he's he's doing everything. The the, the uh, reporter George is uh, Stephalop, Stepho, uh, Snuffleupagus, whatever his name is. 
he's doing everything he can to help Joe Biden. He's asking questions, but he's doing everything. He's not going to follow up on a question where the answer was that embarrassing. That was four or five days ago. Yeah, and what's your point? First of all, it wasn't four or five days ago when he gave that answer. I can't imagine Joe Biden, if he was ever accused of murder, and he's sitting down during the interrogation. Did you murder that person? Look, that was four or five days ago. <laughs> what does it matter? There are points you could make about the fact that people were, were falling off of the airplane. Now, I understand that the visuals obviously very upsetting for anybody. Um, and politically, of course, it's also disastrous for the Biden administration. And for good reason, because as everyone agrees, the whole, this whole thing has been handled disastrously. Um, but also, you, you could point out that um, you know, people chose to sit on the outside of an airplane that was about to take off into the sky. And it, it's, it's also very likely that the person flying the plane didn't know that. You don't exactly have rear view mirrors that are going to show you that. So he did. So the, the, the person flying the plane, let's not put the blame on them for this. They're trying to get out and they're being swabbed, swamped by a, a mob of people. And so they're worried that this mob is going to is going to stop everybody from getting out. They've got like 600 people inside that plane, most of them young men. Uh, so they're trying to get out. They didn't realize that there was anyone sitting on the outside of the plane. And I think it would have been reasonable for them to assume that nobody would do that because that's suicidal. There's like zero chance of that resulting in anything but your immediate death. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's a, a point that Joe Biden, if he was cognizant, could make. Um, he could say, listen, it's a, it's a horrible thing. It's very, very sad. We can't blame the people on the ground for that. Um, that would be fine. But he's not capable of saying that. Instead, the move from Biden and Biden's administration, his handlers, is to try to change the subject. Let's not talk about the Taliban. Let's not talk about what's happening in Afghanistan. Let us redirect and find enemies here at home. Find, find, find someone else to be angry about. Because if Americans are angry about the Taliban, then that means that they're going to be putting it on the administration. So let's try to switch this up. And that's why Joe Biden yesterday gave a speech where he didn't talk about Afghanistan at all, even though it's the only thing that anybody is, is thinking about right now. Uh, instead, he wanted to talk about mask mandates. And he found a new enemy. Those are the people who are against mask mandates, and specifically the people in Tennessee. We are the real enemies here, as Joe Biden explains. Unfortunately, as we've seen throughout this pandemic, some politicians are trying to turn public safety measures that is, children wearing masks in school, into political disputes for their own political gain. Some are even trying to take power away from local educators by banning masks in school. They're setting a dangerous tone. For example, last week at a school board meeting in Tennessee, protesters threatened doctors and nurses who were testifying making the case for masking children in schools. Intimidation and the threats we're seeing across the country are wrong. They're unacceptable. So he's that. This is what the the meth, This is the the plan here is to redirect and let's talk about people who are against mask mandates, and all of them now are are villains and they want children to get sick. 
we see this same method as always. I mean, re- remember, it wasn't all that long ago. Well, it wasn't all that long ago when, of course, nobody was masking kids. No one was even considering masking kids. Once again, flu season, much more dangerous to kids. Nobody considered it. It wasn't put on the table. It was not even uh, something that was discussed by anybody. And then with COVID, it becomes for a while a live issue. Should we mask kids? And there were people on either side of it. And the so-called public health authorities were on either side of it. In fact, there are still some of our blessed, sacred public health authorities who say you shouldn't put masks on kids before the age of, say, five. Um, And you could kind of be, it was a debate. You could be on either side of it. And now, debate is over. You, you, the, the only acceptable position is to be in favor of forcing kids to wear masks uh, for eight hours a day, as young as three or four years old, you know, preschool age. That's, that is always the trajectory. So you take a point of view, an opinion, that at first nobody agrees with, everyone would say is absurd, so absurd that we didn't even talk about it, and then, for, and then for a brief period of time, because once the ruling class, once the elites decide that this is, a th- this is an opinion we should all have, there's going to be a brief period of time where allegedly it's up for debate and we pretend that we're debating it. And we're looking at the science and we're weighing pros and cons. But the outcome has already been decided. Because very quickly, we're going to transition through that period to, nope, it's been decided, debate is over, you have to agree with us on this. This opinion that nobody agreed with uh, 18 months ago, now you, you, you have to. And if you don't, then you are a, a genocidal, murderous maniac and you want to kill kids. And you are the real enemy, says Joe Biden. That's what we need to be talking about. Our, our enemies here at home. Certainly not the Taliban. And our enemies here at home are just people that, people like me and you. This, in fact, has been a message that we've we've heard from the left a lot over the last few days, sometimes disguised as a joke. Here's Stephen Colbert, who has yet to, to make a, a single funny joke at any point during his late night show. His Comedy Central show, where, where, where all he did was make fun of conservatives, was, was actually funny sometimes. Um, but I, I'm not aware, maybe someone could point me to it. I'm not aware, for the years that he's been doing this thing on CBS, I'm not aware of him ever having one funny joke or segment or bit or anything. And he certainly didn't start, he didn't end that streak with this. Let's listen. We've had troops there for 20 years. They fought. They sacrificed. Their families sacrificed so that we wouldn't have a terrorist attack in America planned in a foreign country. Why should our soldiers be fighting radicals in a civil war in Afghanistan? We've got our own on Capitol Hill. Yeah, the, the way that they're leaning into that comparison this, this is what the left always does, of course, because they're, they're never on the defense. They're just going to lean into it. Michael Moore had the same thing. He said, their Taliban, our Taliban, everybody's got a Taliban. They're at their best when they confiscate the halls of power. And then we've got a picture of the Taliban up there and then a picture of uh, the guy in the bison suit and the, 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 you know, the horn hat walking through the Capitol. You, know, you notice some differences, though. Like the people at, at, top, at the top there, the Taliban, they all have guns, for one thing. They're armed. And then the bottom picture, no guns. No one's armed. They're armed with flags and a bullhorn. And a hat with horns on it. 
This is a comparison that should embarrass them. Because for months, they've been saying, oh, it's a, it was an insurrection, a violent insurrection. Our way of life was threatened. And now with the Taliban, you see what a violent insurrection actually is. You see what it, what it really means, what it really entails when a violent group of extremists take over the government. Okay, you've got the president of the country fleeing in a helicopter. Uh, the military laying down their arms. Surrendering, sometimes uh, sometimes joining the other side. Now you have armed men who have taken control of the government, killing people in the street. Even if the media is not quite highlighting some of that stuff. That's what an insurrection looks like. What you're seeing in Afghanistan right now, that's what an insurrection looks like. Uh, compare that to what happened on Capitol Hill on January 6th, where you had a, we had a bunch of unarmed people Walking into the Capitol building, which, which in many cases, the, 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 the doors were opened for them by the Capitol Police. They walk in, take some selfies, put their, put their feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Someone steals a lectern, and then they leave. That comparison reveals just how vapid and ridiculous these, the, the insurrection claim really is. But rather than the left being embarrassed by that, They lean into it and they say, yep, you see, exactly the same. And we've seen more of these kinds of comparisons. MSNBC uh, just published an editorial which says, over the last few days, the airwaves have been filled with Republicans voicing their deep concern over the rights of the women of Afghanistan. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy put out a statement sounding alarm bells that women will suffer the most from the loss of human rights under the Taliban's rule. Representative Stephen Chabot the uh, self-described dean of Ohio GOP congressional delegation appeared Sunday on NPR declaring that under Taliban rule, the lives of women and girls are going to be reduced, condemned to slavery. And yet the writer goes on, I have to wonder where these voices are when extremists, based on a narrow reading of their religion's beliefs, enacted a law that forces a woman who was raped to carry the fetus of the rapist to term. The same law makes it a crime for anyone to assist that woman in trying to abort the rapist's fetus. And then it goes on from there, drawing the expected comparison between pro-lifers and the Taliban. Uh, and Mark Lamont Hill, I, I'm. It, it's hard to. This is a. This is a, We had a little bit of a Joe Biden problem here, where it's hard to tell what exactly he's trying to say. But he had his. Uh, he has his show on Black News tonight, and he was trying to explain. I think. Maybe I'll play this and you tell me what he's trying to say. It sounds like he's trying to blame white conservatives for the fact that women in Afghanistan have to wear burqas. I don't know. Let's listen. This is about the way in which the hijab is being used as a political tool, first to demonize Islam, to make Islam look more oppressive and repressive than any other uh, religion or culture in the world. It's also being used as a tool to justify American imperialism. There has been a consistent narrative from the West, particularly these United States since 9-11, to suggest 
that the reason we're invading countries, the reason we're plundering, the reason we're bombing, the reason we're exploiting is to save the women. Look at what they have to wear on their heads. They have no agency. They have no freedom. And we're going to fix that right now. One, it's dishonest and disingenuous because there are women in Saudi Arabia who are being exploited. There are women in Saudi Arabia who are being denied human rights and we say nothing. Why? Because we want oil and weapons. But somehow when it comes to Afghanistan, we suddenly get uh, outraged. We suddenly have morals and ethics. America doesn't have feelings. It has interests. And right now it has an interest in making you believe that their imperial theft and plunder is part of an attempt of white men to save brown women from brown men. And it's all a complete lie. Do not buy into the theatrics of hijab and burqas and khimars and, 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 and all of that stuff. No, 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 no. This is about good old fashioned colonialism. Uh, once again, I can pick out one coherent statement there, which is actually true. America doesn't have feelings that has interests. That's exactly right. You're right, Mark. Because, yeah, countries don't have feelings. America's not alone in that. What, what country do you think has a feeling? Tell me, tell me a country on earth right now that has a feeling. What are they feeling right now? Yeah, countries have interests. Um, individual people that make up the country have feelings. But the country as a whole shouldn't operate by those feelings. It should operate by interests. Those interests are not always purely uh, political or economic. Those are parts of the, that's, that those are interests as well. But yeah, you, you, every country is worried about its, about its own interests. The problem with America, actually, is not that we're motivated by, by our interests, but that we're not motivated by our interests enough. That we, were taking, we are taking the interests of, of other uh, people in other countries into consideration more than we should. More than any other country does. Because with most countries, there's, there's, there's no controversy. They're worried about their own interests and the interests and the well-being of their own people and that is all they are worried about, and they don't pretend to worry about anything else. Only with us, only with America and, and broadly more Western countries broadly, is it suddenly a contra- controversial for a country to be self-interested in that sense. But all the rest of it, yes, the, the burqa is a, is a tool of, of white conservatives. Somehow... He, I was waiting there. That's why I played the, the whole clip because I'm waiting for him to try to draw. He's, he has taken a lot of, he's strewn a lot of dots across the table here pretty haphazardly. And I'm waiting for him to connect them to see what sort of picture comes together. And uh, he doesn't really. But he seems to be trying to argue that somehow burqas are a, a, a tool of white conservative men to oppress brown women in Afghanistan. Either it's a tool of ours, or it's a uh, it's a it's a, a false narrative. I don't, maybe, maybe he's claiming that they don't re- that it's not true. They don't really have to wear burqas. Oh yeah, they're claiming that women in Afghanistan don't have agency. Yet we claim that because if they show their fa- their hair in public, they'll be stoned to death. Silly me, I thought that that was an attack on the agency of a woman. So what you see overall here, a lot of these comparisons. Um, trying to draw these kinds of connections between you know, conservatives and the Taliban 
We are the American Taliban. And we, we've heard this for years, going back 20 years, we've heard this from the left. And this, to me, raises a couple of questions. Um, the first one is, as I asked yesterday, and I'll ask again, because I think it's a good question. Why do you want, if you're on the left, and you believe that, that uh, we have our own Taliban in this country, and it's powerful and, and numerous, um, why do you want refugees to come here in the first place? If you think that this country is overrun by its own Taliban, isn't that a horrible injustice? Isn't that horribly unfair to them? I mean, in, in, from the, the frying pan into the fire type of thing? They escape one Taliban and end up uh, at the mercy of another, according to you? Let's pretend that you're, you're correct for a second. Yeah, we're all in the Taliban. America's a systemically racist country, very, very oppressive. Uh, you know, we, we've got law enforcement officers that are prowling in the streets, hunting black men, murdering them for no reason. It's such a big problem that there have to, we have to have riots about it across the country. Why do you want to bring refugees into this? This is not a refuge for them. This is not safe for them. For their own good, for their own safety, they should go into the, uh, into the tolerant and loving arms of another Muslim country in the Middle East. Right? I mean, is our country a safe haven for minorities and oppressed foreigners and non-white people who are being oppressed by other non-white people, by the way? Is it a safe haven for them or not? If it is a safe haven, then you're going to have to really drop the oppression, systemic racism, American Taliban narrative. You're going to have to pick one or the other. If it's, if it's, if it's not a safe haven and, and everything is as bad here as you say, then at the very least, we should all be able to agree that we cannot accept this whole flood of uh, Af- Afghan, Afghan refugees. We, we may have different reasons for coming that, to that conclusion, but we should be uh, arriving at the same conclusion nonetheless. Uh, and then another question. Since we're on the subject, and since the left has uh, raised this subject, and, and since they've made this comparison, I, I feel I can ask, which side is it exactly that supports the mass slaughter of human beings? In this case, in the womb. Uh, the genital mutilation of children. Censorship, uh, huge restrictions on basic human freedoms. Which side is that? I, I don't think it's conservatives. So if there is a, an analogous situation here, if we have our own version of the Taliban, seems to me that's the left. So if you're on the left and you're, you're the one looking for a Taliban here in America, I guess what I would say is look in the mirror. That's where you're going to find it. In fact, pro-abortion leftists are responsible for for far more bloodshed than the Taliban has ever been responsible for. I mean, the abortion industry the the abortion industry alone has killed kills more people in a year than the Taliban could kill in a decade. You know, the Taliban looks at Planned Parenthood and is they're they're jealous. They say, teach us your ways, O Master. How do you guys do it? Killing all these uh, baby infidels. 
So if that's the if you're looking for the comparison, I'm I'm saying I think uh, you may want to look at yourself. And fundamentally, there is something in common here. I think between the American left and uh, and the Taliban, and the most fundamental thing in common is that neither group places any inherent value on human life. That is why the Taliban laughs at our suggestion, our demand in sternly worded letters that they respect the rights of women and minorities and everything else. Because there is no concept of human rights without first a concept of inherent human worth and dignity. If you don't have inherent human worth and dignity, then there's no human rights. Because that's what the idea is founded on. The reason we have human rights is because we are people of fundamental moral worth created by a a loving, merciful creator, God. And because of that, you know, there are are certain rights and liberties that, that, that we have by our nature. You take the, the basis of that away, then you don't have the human rights anymore. That's why the Taliban laughs about it, because they don't think, and they, they don't claim to think that all people are created equal, that all people have inherent moral worth. They don't believe that. They don't pretend to believe it. The American left, they don't believe it either. The only difference is that sometimes they pretend to believe it. But they clearly don't. And you, you couldn't celebrate the mass slaughter of a million babies every single year if you believed in the moral worth and inherent human dignity of all people. All right, let's uh, move on to, I guess we'll go now to reading the comments. Actually, one other thing of slightly less importance. Uh, the Washington football team, they're now looking for their new name and they've, they've thrown Redskins out the window because that's offensive for whatever reason. And so now they've, they've whittled it down to these names. So they're, it's going to be one of these, and they've put the, the poll out there. They're asking people to vote on it. And they've whittled it down to a list of eight names, and here are the possible names. The Washington Armada, the Washington Brigade, the Washington Commanders, the Washington Defenders, the Washington Presidents, the Washington Red Hogs, the Washington Red Wolves, or just the Washington football team, which at this point, I hope they, they, they simply go with that, the Washington football team. Well, you see here, first of all, now that we're so worried about offending people, you're going to end up with the most boring, innocuous names imaginable. Because any name that has a little bit of character to it is going to offend someone. But then also, so you go from red skins... And that's offensive, but you're saying, well, we, want to st- we still want to have something that's red. So, well, well let's go with red hogs. Let's, let's, let's go from red skins to red pigs. Is that not only silly and a terrible name, but I, but I don't know, that, that also seems off- offensive to me. All right, let's move now to reading the comments. Uh, Joe says, yo, Matt, if Trump was younger in 2024, would you still prefer DeSantis? Well, first of all, I understand it's a hypothetical question, but he's not younger in 2024. And that, and that is, that's really the point. Now, the, to answer your question, yeah, I would still prefer DeSantis because I think that he's a better executive. Uh, he's better at governing. He's more interested in governing. Um, and uh, he's more compelling rhetorically as well. 
in front of an audience answering questions. I think he's, 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 he's able to string together answers and thoughts that, that, to me, I think are more persuasive and compelling than what you normally get from Trump. But we could put all that to the side. Like, that doesn't even really matter because the point is that Trump will be 78. So even if you disagree with everything I just said about the comparison between DeSantis and Trump, that's fine. But, he, but what we cannot get away from is that Trump will be 78 years old. And we have seen what happens when you elect a 78-year-old president. And you can say all you want, well, it's different with Trump. No, it's not. Because Trump is a human being. He is a mortal creature. He is subject to the laws of nature, just like any other person is. He is not a god. And as you get to that age, approaching your 80s, and you're going to turn 80 in office, you you start to significantly lose your mental faculties and your physical faculties. It happens to everyone. It's a sad thing. It's a sad reality, but it is a reality. And so, no, there is is not any... 78-year-old in this country who I would vote to elect. Not because I have anything against 78-year-old people or anything like that. I'm a realist and I understand the realities that come with advanced age. Which is also why I wouldn't elect a 22-year-old president. Nothing against 22-year-olds. But there are certain realities that come with, with that age, with being that young. Wouldn't want someone like that as a president. Uh, Shen Shaco says, please take the dog that has been there the longest or oldest. You're talking about at the shelter? No way. You want me to take the oldest dog that's been there the longest at the animal shelter? I think I'm sorry for the dog, but that's not happening. I wouldn't recommend anyone do that. There's a reason the dog has been there that long. That's, uh, that's, that's another unfortunate reality that I think we should deal with. Uh, Jess says, Matt explaining the proper way to commit a hate crime on oneself is spectacular. It's like he took the time to really think this through, which just shows how devious his mind could potentially be if he were to use it for evil instead of good. Well, you give me too much credit. Um, I, I, I think any, any, any rational person, if you're going to commit a hate crime against yourself, which probably, probably is an oxymoron there, a rational person who's going to commit a hate crime against themselves. Not, not a rational act to begin with. But we could all imagine more effective ways to do it where you cover yourself a little bit more than what we got from this vaccine official who mailed herself a, a dog muzzle with her own credit card. Um, Wider says, Matt, I love your show, man, but let's be real here. It's never going to sound very convincing when you're first explaining how our modern Western civilization believes in things like human rights and such because it was uniquely built upon a Christian worldview framework. And a few minutes later, you ask why it should always fall upon us in the modern civilized West to take in refugees of war. Didn't you, uh, did you just answer your own question before you even asked it? Uh, No, I don't think I did at all. Yeah, we are a civilization built on a Christian framework. There's no no question about that. Uh, We're a nation built upon that. Which is not to say we're a theocracy. Unfortunately, as you know, if it were up to me, we would be a theocratic fascist dictatorship. Uh, But we are built upon that, that Christian worldview, philosophically. But we're still a country. Okay, and our government has an obligation to its own people first. Um, 
being Christian does not mean that you can't have a functioning government. And a functioning government has to has an obligation, has to prioritize its own people. Yeah, as a Christian, in terms of Christian principles, you love all people across the world. You love the downtrodden and all of that, of course. And you as an individual Christian, you're, you're welcome to pursue that as far as you want to. You can go on a mission trip somewhere. You can go anywhere you want and, and, and help the poor, help the downtrodden. It's a wonderful thing to do. But the government has a responsibility, first and foremost, to its own people. I'm not saying that we never take in any refugees at all. I'm not saying that. I'm not against the concept. Um, I'm against the way that it is done now. And I don't. And the problem is I don't trust our government because they don't prioritize our own people. I don't trust them to bring in this flood of Afghan refugees, many of them men of fighting age, from a country where there is, among a certain portion of the population, at the very least, uh, sympathies for the Taliban. And I don't trust our government to bring them in and to vet them properly. And then upon vetting them to make the right call and the right decision. So that's why I'm very skeptical of this plan to bring in all these refugees. Uh, And Teresa says, Matt, important question. Have you read any good books lately? Yeah, I just finished a book called The Last Place on Earth about the race to the South Pole in the early 20th century between uh, Robert Falcon Scott and Roald... uh, Amundsen. Amundsen is the Norwegian. He won the race. Scott got to the pole uh, after, behind Amundsen. And then Scott's whole team died on the way back after losing the race. And they all die. They freeze to death and and starve to death slowly. Amundsen, though, the winner was overshadowed by by Scott because Scott became this kind of martyr figure and became a hero in death, even though he was grossly incompetent and he caused the death of, of his entire team because of his incompetence. And then Amundsen is a fascinating figure because he was the first person to navigate the Northwest Passage before being the first to the South Pole, and he accomplished that to the South Pole. And then he navigated the Northeast Passage, um, uh, and that took seven years because he got stranded in the ice, and then he got attacked by polar bears, and it was a whole thing. And then he was the first to reach the North Pole by plane, and then he went into retirement after conquering the entire globe And accomplishing in one lifetime this thing that entire empires had tried to do for hundreds of years and had failed to do. Then he goes into retirement in his 50s. He comes out of retirement because another explorer is on an Arctic journey, gets trapped in the ice in the the Arctic. And uh, and, and Amundsen decides to get in a plane and try to rescue him. And he crashes into the Arctic Ocean is never never seen again. So fascinating figure. Um, And most people don't know his name. And this is just another one of those guys who, you know, you go to public school, you might never hear his name mentioned, which is a tragedy. So that's the book. Pick up that book. Very interesting. Well, tragically, as much as I love doing the ads and I love especially telling you about all the great Daily Wire promos, I only have one. I only have one today to do. This is, this is uh, my favorite part of the day and it's been severely condensed. But if you haven't pulled the trigger and joined the Daily Wire, then I'm going to assume you haven't heard of our Reader's Pass yet, which is a steal For just $4 a month, the Daily Wire Reader's Pass unlocks exclusive editorial content that unpacks trending political and cultural topics penned by everyone from Ben Shapiro to Dan Crenshaw and, best of all, Matt Walsh, plus analysis pieces like here's what went wrong in Afghanistan and what we should have done differently. You can go check that out right now if you have the Reader's Pass. 
You can take a deep dive with readers past collections, different series of articles on a given subject. Current collections include a culture in crisis and BLM, the organization behind a movement. When you sign up with Reader's Pass, you also get access to the Morning Wire newsletter and a, a Monday through Saturday email covering the top stories that you need to know, available only to Daily Wire members. It's only four bucks a month, so stop being a cheapskate, damn it, and go to uh, dailywire.com right now and sign up for a Reader's Pass today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today for our cancellation, we must check in again with our trusty healthcare workers. Now I should say that... Um, I have no ill will towards healthcare workers at all. I respect people in that line of work. I have family members in that line of work. They're great people, and I'm sure they're not alone in their industry in that regard. My problem is not with healthcare workers, but with morally deranged narcissists and attention-starved drama queens. There are many people of that type living in our country today, but events of the last couple of years have shown a special spotlight on the members of that group who happen to also wear a name tag and scrubs to work. So to that end, I have to highlight two men the first is Adam Hill, MD, who has an inexplicably large following on social media and seems to quite enjoy the attention. He posted this. He said, hi, I'm a healthcare worker crying at the hospital. It's important to show more of this. And then there's a selfie of him with a single tear rolling down his cheek. Um, now, we've already spent enough time, arguably a lot more than enough time, discussing the issue of men crying. As you know, there are only six acceptable reasons for a man to cry. Does this fall into one of those categories? Maybe. You know, I don't know what he just experienced. Maybe something really traumatic happened to him. It's quite possible. The issue, of course, is that he took out his phone and documented it and posted it to social media. How does that work exactly? I mean, think about any time when you were sincerely distraught over something, a time when you were suffering emotionally, a time when life saddled you with a burden that was too heavy to carry. Maybe a loved one died. Maybe they ran out of guacamole at Chipotle. Whatever the case may be, would it have ever occurred to you as you were crying to pull out your phone and take a picture of the event? Have you ever said to yourself, my God, I'm so upset. This is terrible. I'm devastated. You know what? This would make a great selfie. Let me get my phone. Has anything like that ever crossed your mind? It would seem that if it did, you couldn't really have been all that upset to begin with. No person who is really sad, who is really grieving, actually wants their grief to be recorded and displayed for public consumption. No person except for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, who, as we know, was experiencing very real trauma at the site of an empty parking lot in Texas and brought a professional photographer along to record her profoundly sincere emotional breakdown. But other than that, this is just not a normal thing. Here, here's, here's what it comes down to, you know. Uh, your suffering becomes trivial and meaningless when you use it for attention and pity. I'm not the one saying that your suffering is trivial. You are saying that. You're communicating that. When you seek to cash it in for retweets, you have chosen to trivialize it. You have made it into mere content. And that was your choice. I can't take your suffering seriously because you don't take it seriously, clearly. So, so much for Adam Hill, MD. Now for uh, Dr. Jason Valentine in Alabama. The Washington Post has this story. It says, in Alabama, where the nation's lowest vaccination rate has helped push the state closer to a record number of hospitalizations, a physician has sent a clear message to his patients. Don't come in for medical treatment if you are unvaccinated. Jason Valentine, a physician at Diagnostic and Medical Clinic Infirmary Health in Mobile, Mobile Alabama, uh, Mobile, Mobile, Alabama, posted a photo on Facebook this week of him pointing to a sign taped to a door uh, informing patients of his new policy coming October 1st. 
The sign reads, Dr. Valentine will no longer see patients that are not vaccinated against COVID-19. Valentine wrote in the post, which has since been made private, but was captured in online images, that there were no conspiracy theories, no excuses stopping anyone from being, being vaccinated. The doctor, who said at least three unvaccinated patients have asked him where they could get a vaccine since he posted the photo, has remained resolute to those who have questioned his decision in recent days. Okay, now I have to wonder how many divorces this guy has, given that vows apparently mean nothing to him. Doctors may not, may not take the traditional Hippocratic Oath anymore, but they do swear to treat the sick and to do no harm. I mean, this is the promise doctors make to the public simply by calling themselves doctors. It is implied. A doctor who refuses to treat sick people is like a, a garbage man who refuses to touch your garbage can if you put trash in it. I'm not touching that thing. What'd you put in there? Trash? He is fundamentally refusing to do the one single thing that his job requires him to do. Now, the scary thing, of course, is that he's not the only one who thinks that uh, unvaccinated people are unworthy of medical treatment. You hear this argument a lot, actually. And the justification is that unvaccinated people aren't taking care of their health and don't deserve to be treated when they suffer the consequences of their own reckless decisions, as the argument goes. Also, again, as the argument goes, unvaccinated people are a strain on the healthcare system. But even if I were to agree with the framing here, which I don't, shouldn't we apply this principle consistently? Obesity kills far more people than COVID does. And it even helps to kill many of the people who die of COVID. So why aren't we refusing medical treatment to fat people who eat fast food and haven't seen the inside of a gym since the Clinton administration? They're behaving recklessly. They're not taking care of their health. They're not taking the vaccine, as it were, the vaccine here being broccoli and sit-ups. They're also a strain on the healthcare system. Obesity costs us billions of dollars a year, and I'm not just talking about our tab at Cinnabon. And it's not just obesity. What about people who get STDs? Most STDs are contracted through reckless and avoidable behavior. What about alcoholics with liver damage or smokers with lung cancer? As it turns out, a huge number of the medical problems from mild to severe and everything in between, which send people to doctor's offices and hospitals, have a lifestyle component to them. If doctors weren't going to treat people whose choices have contributed to their ailments, then they're not going to be treating almost anybody. As it turns out, as a doctor... It is your job to treat the sick no matter how they got sick. If you aren't prepared to do that job or if you require constant pity and admiration from the public in order to do it, perhaps you should find another line of work. Go work at Starbucks or something. They actually, from what I understand, will promote you if you cry on the job over there. So try that instead. But for now, these particular healthcare workers and the rest like them are, of course, canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Sasha Tolmachov. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Nika Geneva. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. 
The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2021. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, admits that the Biden administration has no idea what's going on in Afghanistan. A major new study suggests that the COVID lockdowns made babies significantly dumber. And the World Economic Forum promises to shoot laser beams into your heart. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.